0: Hey, what's up there, Surf Splendor Podcast listeners. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, David Scales. Um, psyched to bring you today's episode with Gary Linden as our guest. And hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, the Billabong Pipe Pipemaster uh, event has started. It's Today was day one. It was a lay day. And then uh, the swell forecast, though, looks absolutely incredible. There was waves today, but... They're going to be better waves, basically, coming. And so they put it on hold, and hopefully it's going to go tomorrow. And you definitely need to be checking that out. It looks like it's going to be an all-time event, which is why I'm excited to bring you today's episode, because Gabriel Medina is in the running to win his first world title. Today's episode is with Gary Linden, who has a lot of strong ties to Brazil and strong opinions about Gabriel Medina and the Brazilian surf culture. And then additionally, um, the ASP just greenlit the Punta Galea Big Wave World Tour event. That's set to go for Thursday. I think it's December 10th is Thursday. So there's just tons of swell activity right now. So those are things that are really exciting, but again, particularly relevant to today's guest, Gary Linden. So I'm kind of getting ahead of myself with Gary. I'll let him fully explain his involvement with all those things. And just say that if you're new to Surf Splendor, welcome to the show. And there's 64 past episodes for you to enjoy for free. Everything is available on our website surf or wherever you're listening to this if it's an app itunes stitcher any popular podcasting app our show is available for free so i encourage you to check that out and then uh enjoy today's episode i'll be back at the end of the show to sign us off and a uh, few words in closing all right thanks for tuning in enjoy the show
1: I started surfing at 12 years old. At 15, I was in my first surf club, and I became the contest director. Oh, really? Yeah. At uh, 15, as at well. At 15. Oh my god! So I started, uh, you know, learn how to rate the guys in our clubs. We had an A team and a B team, and, right? And so we could go compete, and then learn to judge. And uh, was
0: that in San Diego? At, or... Yeah, in San
1: Diego. Okay. I started out with the Los Olas Surf Club, and 15, and at 17, I went to Winded Sea Surf Club. I shaped my first surfboard at seventeen and also organized the high school surfing championships for Windsea Surf Club in, in San Diego. Wow. So I, w- I went to the television shows, radio shows. I got learned about sponsorship, organizing everything. So my life has been surfing, shaping and, and contest. All the whole with a blend of everything and that's what's kept me going. So I see myself as a
0: surfer. You do. <laughs> first and, <laughs> first and first foremost. First and foremost a yeah. surfer. Good. Good. It's interesting that like there's a lot of shapers who actually don't surf or maybe they started <laughs> off surfing, you know, yeah. and I always kind of wonder about that. I don't know if that's prohibitive in the learning curve of shaping. If you can't go out and ride your own equipment, you know, I wonder about that relationship.
1: Well, I probably wouldn't buy a board from them. Oh, know? yeah. You know, unless, unless they had surfed, you know. Right. I mean, it's so integral to my surfboards. Yeah. Every board I make, I can ride. Right. You know, to a reasonable degree of mm-hmm. performance. So, if it doesn't work, I'm not going to make it.
0: So, you've been making boards consistently that whole time?
1: Well, he, I went to college at, at 18 for two years and traveled mm-hmm. around the world a little bit after that. But by the time I started production shaping full time in Brazil in 74. Okay. So, probably. You know, I shaped, the first year was pretty pretty busy because uh, I started making the first short bo- boards, you know, the V-bottoms that went from okay. nine foot to eight, and the shops weren't making them, so the only place you could get one was somebody garage shaping them, so did a lot of them, and then I went to college and, you know, dabbled a little bit, you know, but, um, you know, I didn't go full into time in the shaping bay till I, second time to Brazil, and you know, I had I was married and I had to make a living, so yeah. Jumped in the room.
0: Um, prior to going to Brazil, like when you were based in San Diego and you first got into shaping boards, who were your mentors or inspiration at that time?
1: Well, you know, the local guys like Mike Hinson and and, and Skip Fry were the guys that really were, you know, influenced everybody in San yeah. Diego. And Mike Diffender came there late late in the sixties and uh, Bob McTavish, uh, that was the first board I copied. Skip Skip brought it back from the Windy Sea Surf Club trip to Australia, and everybody in the club got to try it. And it was just like so different. I had to have one, so how so? Oh man, it's just like we were riding nine foot, you know, some guys ten foot boards, and then cut the foot off of, a foot off the back of it, and it just loosened the board up. And you know, incredible these V, v bottom things. They are so hard to turn and so hard to control, but you get it on a rail. They just that full via just went straight up, and we were we were nose riding and you know trying to do these little turns. And all of a sudden, these guys were just carving, and it was just different. I
0: had to have one, so
1: yeah, I so, made one,
0: right? And uh, how was your replica? Was it close, or did it uh, vary in some way? Or? Well,
1: you know, I didn't know what I was doing. You sure, know, I had my my girlfriend's little brother said on the other side of turned over picnic. Tables and that was a racks And he oh, okay. he held the one side and I sure formed the other side. So wow. it was pretty pretty crude, but you know I went and glassed it, and did a purple tint first nice. first try and <laughs> came out good enough that I traded that for a brand new three stringer Barry Kanaiapuni rick. Wow. So that just to tell you the the value yeah of having a short board. There weren't any right. So somebody wanted to give me this brand new board. I sold for 125 bucks or something, which is you know, a top-of-the-line oh, board yeah. there it, then and had enough money to buy some more blanks and get my business going. So I didn't do that bad. Wasn't as good as Skip's replica, the first one that he shaped. And mm-hmm. I copied. I didn't copy the direct one. I sh- copied Skip's replica. Oh, okay. And, um, yeah, but none of the boards were that, I mean, it wasn't that critical. Yeah. I mean, it was It's a good start.
0: Interesting. I, I had
1: the feel for it.
0: What brought you to Brazil?
1: Um. I, uh, you know, I quit school after the 1969-70 riots that uh, that was up in Santa Barbara. And oh, okay, st- you were in Santa Barbara? Yeah, a student okay. got killed. I was in the riots. The last quarter was martial law, and I just, you know, I wasn't into, you know, spending another couple of years in that environment. And, I, and at that time, you know, you, you're young, you don't know what's going to happen. And right. So I started traveling and... You know, I'd work for for a while, and then travel. I went through South America or Central America and Mexico for a few months. And
0: were you going just with the goal of surfing mainly?
1: Yeah, yeah, going for surfing. We didn't have any maps. We didn't know what was going wow. on. Wow, th- that's another long story. But who are you
0: traveling with? Was it anybody whose names we would know? Or? No, oh, okay.
1: We went through Mexico. with my best friend. He's just got great, it. You know, you know, we it's pretty pretty off the track. You know? Sure. Um, and uh, then I went to, to Europe and I went to France, got to watch Mike Diffender for shaping in the Barlon factory in France. Oh, yeah.
0: So you had already developed that relationship with him in San Diego when yeah, he was I, here?
1: I didn't know. You know, he was like, you know, the icon shape guy, okay. you know, so I didn't know him too well. just knew it mostly of him. Right. And, you know, his partner at the time, Tony Channon, uh, my second boards, my second and third boards, I got to use diffs templates and his mm. you know shaping his room and everything you know so I, I had a connection there but we weren't friends yeah but when I went I went I took a board I made and it was't just too wasn't the right board and diff was shaping there so I went and got a board shape by him and I asked if if I could watch and he goes yeah I go sit in the corner and so on the days that that uh, there wasn't surf I went and watched him shape and he's the one that probably personally inspired me the most to shape to 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 be who I see myself as a art as an artist. Edif hmm. was an artist, you know. He wasn't just a shaper. I mean, I was not going to go in there. I'm not going to go in and knock out ten boards a day anymore. You know, just not. I had to do it, but never. That was just. I see myself with the balsa boards, you know, on the wood boards and creating, uh, you know, art with it. You know, and that's how how I've approached it always, mm-hmm. and not you know, whether I shaped the cleanest board or whatever, but I had the nicest form for my eye. Like always you read Velsy's book, he goes, I'm a terrible carpenter. I see curves. I don't see straight lines.
0: What was it about Diffendurfer that made him an artist as opposed to other shapers whom you had worked with? Well, I didn't ever get to,
1: I had never watched anybody really shape before. Oh, okay. You know, I, I'd, I was self-taught. Yeah. So I did everything myself. But no you know, he had a like a block of foam. It wasn't a blank that's just shaped. And he had to draw on the he had to draw the rail line and draw drew everything and wow. just you know, just he was shaping to live. Not living to shape, mm-hmm. of, just like the same with the surfing. Yeah. You know, he was traveling around the world s- surfing and having a good time and the way he could afford it was to shape. So he approached it differently. He wasn't in there to just bang out a bunch of boards. He was just like, okay, this is part of my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, this is expression of, of who I am. You know, yeah. you can feel it. Right. You can watch it and the way he approached it. And you, you talked to Michelle Barlon, who the man who invented the computer shaping machine, the Frenchman. Right. We later became very good friend of, you know, I've gone back there and good friends of the family. But... Of all the shapers that had ever been there through there, Diff was the best. Really? Yeah. Wow. And there you know they've just there was something special about him. Yeah. And how he approached it. You know, just you know, he would you know, drawing lines and took his time and wasn't you know, he was there for having fun. Was that just his just
0: personality as well though? I mean, outside of the shaping room, what was he like as an individual and a surfer and
1: uh, he was you know I didn't ever get to surf with him. Yeah. He's a little, I don't know, Those some of the older guys didn't surf that much, but mm-hmm. he traveled around surfing and and just, you know, like he, he had an orange Porsche driving around. For yeah. Him, right? So, I mean, he's like, yeah, there's a flair to
0: him. Everything That's what him I'm wondering, a, yeah. a
1: flair. Yeah. Him. Like, and I, and I, I watch him going, okay, you get two boards a day, get 20 bucks a board, and this, this, 71 that was yeah that was money right? right you know and he's rolling with a Porsche and yeah at the steakhouse at, at, uh, at, at night where everybody's hanging out he's got a bunch of friends and right. you know everybody wants to talk to him and that's pretty good that's a pretty good uh, thing to be you know totally you know
0: so, um, you ended up in Brazil then after France at some point?
1: Yeah, he made me this magic board. To this day, it's probably one of the best boards. It's, it's the best board anybody's ever made for me. What was it? Uh, it was a seven foot uh, round pin single fin. Okay. And it could ride two foot to, you know, 15 foot Hawaiian. Size. Okay. I mean, just, and I served France and I served Portugal for a month and then. Went to Canary Islands for a month, and from the Canary Islands, I wanted to sail. I'd, I'd gone, well, you know, I'm going to go back to school. Um, so the sailing route was Canary Islands back to Florida. Okay. So, you know, well, I want to sail. And I would go down every day to the docks trying to get a boat. The only boat I could get a crew on was this old beat-up boat going to Brazil. I'm like, well, whatever. I looks pretty cool. I, I remember studying Brazil in sixth grade? Yeah. I want to go see what it's like. Yeah. I mean, it can't be that hard. Once
0: you're on the landmass, you can eventually make your way to America oh, from or there. Or, yeah, or, <laughs> or it's
1: just a venture change plans. Yeah. And I got on a 30-foot 1936 double-ender wood boat that had original sails. Wow. I'd never sailed before. Wow. First day out at sea, force nine winds, which is 20-foot waves and 80-mile-an-hour winds broke the spreader broke the engine we limped into Cabo Verde's ate more food than well we were getting the spreader fixed we were yeah. there for a week ran out of food got in the doldrums took two months to get across when I got to Brazil um, I stayed for a while but my wow. board went with me surfed it all through Brazil and when I was there I found this was reading the sailing charts I found where the I thought the waves were and I found the best place in that's wave in Brazil, actually, right out the bat, and uh,
0: spot that's known now today, you know,
1: Saguarema, where they have oh. the pri- six star prime.
0: Yeah, that left.
1: Well, it's a left when it's big, and it's okay. It's a right when it's
0: yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So it's but it's incredible wave.
0: Were there people surfing it there, mm, there or people then? People
1: surfing, but nobody lived there. I was okay. One of the first to live there and actually surf so. It's wow. Big. So I got a little shaping job in town, shape a couple boards. Every couple of weeks or something like that, you know, and
0: were there any, I mean, I can't even think who the board builders were there at that time.
1: Well, there's a fellow called Tito Rosenberg who, yeah. who had, uh, had been, I'd met in Mexico. Okay. And he went back there and, and he had, a, a shop in Rio at some place. And I went to find him. I couldn't find him. And, um, then there was, uh, Colonel Pajeras who made Clark foam. Okay. And so um, I shaped a few boards at the, at the foam factory. And then Tito went to buy foam and found that there was a foreign shaper. And he wasn't a real good shaper. He was a great glasser because mm. he worked at Gordon Smith. So we kind of hooked up then. And I, you know, in the end, shaped some boards for him as well.
0: I didn't realize Clark had a factory in Brazil.
1: Yeah. Um, Gordon Clark had gone through all through South America on motorcycle. And he had a, a franchise in Peru and one in, in Brazil. But the Brazilian one outlasted the Peruvian one.
0: How long did it last?
1: It lasted until, I don't know when it was established, but I'm sure it was sometime around 64, 65, 66 maybe. And it lasted all the way till 74, it was still, 74, when I went back, my friend, whose father owned Coca-Cola, started Roger's Phone. Hmm. And then they competed for a while, and then eventually he bought Clark.
0: Oh, okay. Got it. What, uh, your goal was to get back to America to go to school. You know, when did your plans change and decide to stay in Brazil?
1: Oh, well, I, I shoot, I, I, uh, I stayed six months, which was, a, you know, you get a three-month visa and then you renew it in three months and I learned to speak Portuguese and okay. I really, you know, the industry was just starting. I mean, I had the first foreign shaper to go there and shape and there was a lot of opportunity so I didn't have any money so I wanted, to, so I came back to the U.S. and wanted to work for two years and, uh, you know, get some money and then go back. Uh, during that two years, I became a, you know, bartender Um and I met my wife, my future wife. We got married, got, went back on a sailboat with the, the other guy that crewed on the original sailboat. He was Canadian. And he came back, and his dad was a millionaire, bought him a sailboat. I came back, and I started washing dishes <laughs> <laughs> and had to work my way up to be a bartender. But anyway, he bought this boat, and uh, we went back to Florida and after we got married. And our goal was to sail back to Brazil. But um, we didn't get that far, you know. Uh, we spent a couple months in the Bahamas, and sailed to the uh, Virgin Islands, and then from there, my wife and I flew to Brazil. And okay. So that was our second time. So then we, we lived there two years. Okay. And you know, shaped boards while you were there, boards, and made and a built living, built a house, still have a house. Oh, you do? Yeah, I still have my house near Sacaréma. It's right in
0: Sacaréma. Yeah. Wow! Awesome. Yeah. Very cool.
1: Yeah. So don't get to go back there that much, but you know, I at, over the years I would go back in shape and put the money and build another room and mm-hmm. f- you know fix the house up a little bit. So.
0: very cool. Yeah. Do you spend much time traveling elsewhere in the world at this point, or?
1: Well, I you know I'm, I'm the you know vice president of the Big Wave World Tour, the tour I founded, and uh, I go uh, when there's an event. Cool. I go to the events and you know. Once I, I don't I don't know how if that'll last forever, but if it if it does, so be it. If it doesn't, I' plan to you know travel a lot. go back to Brazil and
0: I'm out. curious leading into that big wave conversation, um, for me, personally as a surfer, like I've grown up surfing, but big wave surfing is such almost a different thing entirely. I have a hard time reconciling my experience as a surfer with what. Twiggy Baker is doing when he catches a wave. Tell me about how that evolved for you.
1: Well, for me, I think big wave surfing is not the size of the wave, but the frame, a frame of mind. Okay. So I always sat out the back and waited for the biggest wave of the day.
0: No matter when you, even if it was a three foot day, that's what if it was
1: you... A two foot day if it was a ten foot day, whatever. I always sat out the back, wait for the biggest wave because yeah. I, I was into. I didn't want to. I couldn't sit inside and there. I still can't sit huh. inside and just, you know, frenzy around on the little waves. I got to right. wait for the quality and the bigger one, and so that just gradually escalated. You know, step by step, by just getting bigger and bigger waves. Yeah. And I think that's what it is for anybody. It, uh, I think that's the core of it.
0: I that makes perfect sense, but there becomes a point in number of feet where it's a different thing, you know, where on that three foot day, you catch the five footer and you're still doing turns like you would on the three foot wave on the 15 to 20 foot day. You're no longer really doing those turns. You know, the objective seems to change at some point. Is that accurate? Would you say, or
1: I don't know, just for me, I, I just, I dream of these a frame peaks and, and they don't have a size to them.
0: Yeah. I just, you know,
1: when I'm out of totos if it's, 15 foot or it's 30 foot, it's like the same for me, you know.
0: It's, when did you start surfing Totos?
1: In the 80s, mid-80s.
0: Um, who discovered that spot?
1: In the 60s, the Wind & Sea Surf Club went out there on a south swell. And they surfed uh, Tours Hammer, which they named, uh, you know, which is the, it's the left on the North Island. we are surfing the rights on the North Island. It's a uh, left on the South Island. We are surfing the North on the right island, where Killers is. Bud Holtz took tours out there in the 80s and late 70s, I believe, mm. maybe. But not too much. You know, there wasn't a lot of activity when I first started going out there.
0: Yeah. that um, It seems so scary to hear those old stories or like hear Jeff Clark, you know, pioneering Mavericks with, you know, now, you're, now I'm just used to the rescue team being in the lineup and yeah. that sort of thing. It seems like such... Um, More courageous sport back in the day when there was none of the safety nets, I guess, is what I mean.
1: It was a lot more fun. Was it? Yeah. I mean, you didn't ride as big a wave maybe, you know, but it was, you know, you were more cautious, but I mean, I think the big breakthrough was a a leash that didn't break.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Sure.
1: That took a while because, but you learn to swim and you learn to, you know, take off on the right wave and...
0: Yeah, and not, you know, just, you know, you know, go go crazy. Tell me about founding the Big Wave World Tour. What um, what was the need that you saw, and what was the purpose kind of behind that? And had you an interest in competitive surfing in general? And like, how did you connect all those dots?
1: Yeah, when like I told you, when I was a surf club. When I was fifteen, so I was competed all through my teens, and there was no real. Uh, path to follow to be a pro surfer there wasn't any pro surfing right so I you know I was the original uh, board of directors for the ASP back in the 80s when Ian founded and I was judged for the PS before that but I judged you know and I always stayed active you know trying to contribute where I could to help create a sport and I worked for 18 years with the ASP as a volunteer on the board and was the president in the end and when they moved to Australia I suddenly had uh, a lot of free time on my hands and mm-hmm. and it was up and running you know surfing there, kelly slater and everybody had a profession it was all going and everything was good but big wave surfers still didn't have anything going on mm-hmm. you know and i that was my passion so um you know i started with Toto santos trying to get something going and we got a contest organized. There was going to be part of the um, ASP World Tour, mm-hmm. the first event we organized, and and then there was a, there was a merger that was going to happen in that was in '97 with the ASP and a, a, a group called CSI, which uh, was a media group, mm-hmm. and they were going to be the sponsor for Toda Santos. Two weeks before the event was to take place. Uh, the surfers didn't ratify the agreement and they pulled the plug and so we were left with all this organization mm. and no no event. So the ISA came along with Reef and Fernando and uh, the, the event went in 98. Right, And so from there, uh, we had another one in 99 and then we did Madeira in 2000. And so I actually had a job with ISA, you know, just trying to keep that event big wave world tour big wave world tour team challenge championship i don't know what it was was yeah teams from like how they have it all over the world um but that just kind of went by the wayside and um red bull in south africa uh start sponsoring the uh big wave africa red bull big wave africa and they invited me down to be contest director and i just did that for about nine years and during that time developed my contest format fine-tuned everything a little bit you know hmm. interference rule all that right. stuff and uh and i you know just tried like crazy to get sponsorship where i wrote out a a business plan in in 2000, and I had it all. I had it in Portuguese and mm. and English, and um, it was really hard to sell sponsorship when you didn't have a product.
0: I would think you do have a product, though. I mean, this I didn't have a product. Okay, break that down. I think the big the the product is the event, a a event.
1: But I wanted to someone to sponsor a tour. Got it. So I didn't have a tour. So, no, you know, how can I, you know, it's just.
0: You You had the idea of a tour though, right? You, I'm sure you had stops picked out that oh, you would had, like to I go to. I had
1: everything done. Right. But I
0: didn't but have. But it had never happened before. It hadn't happened before. And that's why they're, got it. Nobody wants to be the first one to bet on something to come.
1: Or to believe in somebody who's, you know, financially has no clout at all And right. is a surfboard shaper and has no, you know.
0: Collateral. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Can that guy do it? Right. Who is this guy? Right? Mm-hmm. and so I it was in South Africa, oddly enough, and I was watching the breaking down the doors. Yeah, busting, uh, busting down the doors. Yeah, yeah. Uh, about the formation of the IPS. hmm And uh, I'd been around at that time, and I just a light bulb went off in my head. Okay, I don't have to find fund all these t- events. I just have to link them up and and do a ratings. So that's what I did. I just went to all the events that potentially could have an event or had an event. and You know, like we had, we had Totos. We had, there was an event in, in Peru, um, along with Ramon and Quicksilver. We created uh, the Ceremonial, so I had Chile, Peru, uh, Mavericks had an event, or, you know, so I got Mavericks and Totos, and all of a sudden, I had a tour. Wow. And what year was that? It was in 2009, 2010.
0: it's a lot of years in the making
1: it took me yeah it took me about uh, 20 years 15 years
0: and that uh was the big wave world tour and then the asp came along and decided to partner with you as well right
1: yeah and that happened after we'd crowned five world champions
0: five world champs
1: wow this is our first year with the ASP. Good. How do you feel
0: about where it is currently and the direction it's going?
1: I'm super stoked. You know, Good. It was really, really a positive thing for me. I got to the point where financially, uh, you know, I I just couldn't care, afford to carry it. It was, you know, it, it was it was taking all my energy. I couldn't run Lyndon Surfboards any, any worse. I had almost no money coming in and putting all my energy into doing the tour, and I couldn't take it to the next level, which the ASP's able to do you know Mm -hmm. bringing it to the public with their great webcasts and everything else right i mean it's 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 on the verge of of being everything i dreamed it would would be could be
0: when you're hiring for a small business you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role and there's no faster or effective way than through linkedin jobs Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Do you see any shortcomings in the way that, um, not shortcomings, but like challenges, let's say, in the way that the Big Wave Tour or the events exist? You know, they run in one day. Um, whereas like a World Championship Tour event, they kind of, they can hype it, for months in advance because they they pick, they know when the swell window is for that region of the world and they could pick it months in advance. We're looking forward to Gold Coast in February when it's still December. And so there's a lot of um, pre-event uh, marketing that can take place. And then when the event happens, they stretch it over the course of a week or two weeks or whatever and they seem to really nurture it and get a lot of, I don't know, marketing value out of it. What are the challenges unique to the big wave world tour and are they challenges or are they benefits or what are your thoughts?
1: Well, you know, potentially if it's a standalone tour, it, it, there's, there's some challenge to keep the momentum going, but being part of a, a surfing like the world surf league yeah. is what we are. A, it, you know, that is a like an opportunity to just augment both tours. Like it, like, right. you know, it, the, the surfing's happening all year round. And when it happens, it, it's really special and there's a big wave event, mm-hmm. and that's awesome. You know, we have a, a Southern Hemisphere leg, and we have a Northern Hemisphere leg. We have three events at each leg, and then wherever the swell, like right now, I'm watching their swell, and coming next week in Spain, coming for Piahi and coming for Todos, and a, our qualifying event in Oregon. Yeah. So what are we going to choose, you know? So we're really having fun playing with it. Yeah. You know, my call that came up, I have to talk to our event manager in uh, piahi. Oh okay, at once to discuss what's going on there. so Awesome. So it's really I think it's really cool. It preserves the excitement. Big wave surfing is really unique. It's not something that you can plan. Right. Part of the mystique is you this, the athletes have to be ready on a 24/7 365 basis. Mm-hmm. And we do too. you know we, mm-hmm. we take a couple of weeks we take about total we take a month and a half off between each set, season. That's the only time when we can actually plan something right in our life. Like you
0: know,
1: with a wife
0: or a girlfriend or whatever, you know. <laughs> everybody who doesn't care about surfing, yeah, <laughs> what about you said the original Totos event was supposed to be part of the c t Tell me about that, like in the future, I think that's a super exciting possibility is that would that ever be a practicality
1: uh, I don't think so i mean um it it was. <sighs> It was probably a blessing that it didn't happen because we we had the women's, we had 64 surfers. And to try and come up with a format, you know, to run the format, it's not going to showcase what we're really, really trying to do. Okay. A big wave swell will peak uh, during, there's a three-hour period when it's going to bomb. You know, you can pretty much, once the swell's there, you pretty much know when the biggest waves are going to happen. And you get six hours to run a big wave event. That's what we need. Mm. So we we try and run it on the up, the, the rise, and then still have something for the fall and catch the peaks sometime during the day. You know. Yeah. And if you're trying to run 64 surfers, we had what I think it was 16 women and 38 men at the time, so, or 48 men at the time. That was going to be a nightmare for us. Mm. I mean, it, well, it was for me because it was all on my shoulders. But yeah. I, I but, don't think it's a feasible thing. Like we, we did. I remember one year uh, we had a, a WCT uh, surf about Billabong, and it was in '87. 80, I, th- I think I might not, not have the dates correct, but one day Wyoming broke, and all the not all the guys were, you know, a couple guys didn't even want to paddle out and didn't go out.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: And and so it's just not for everybody. And, the, and these guys can potentially, you know, and, and gals can potentially hurt themselves because they aren't comfortable with it, don't have the equipment, no experience, and jeopardize their, their career, which is focused on something else.
0: Right. Tell me about the judging criteria in the Big Wave World Tour and how it um, varies from the CT event.
1: Well, basically, you know, the all the, all the adjectives are there, critical, biggest, best, um, you know, all that, but... We're based, basically it's catching the biggest wave and, and making a critical draw. Mm-hmm. You know that's
0: so. There's no variety of maneuvers, maneuvers, speed, power, and flow. Those aren't part of the yeah, criteria. It's,
1: it's, it's part of it, but it's secondary to get you ha- It all has to be on the biggest wave. You know? Yeah, it's, it's catching biggest wave outside and the biggest
0: drop I'm just curious because the ASP, as it's evolved, I think they've um, gravitated towards objective trying to be as objective as possible, mm-hmm. you know, and define the criteria so that we can rely on consistent analysis. And um, speed, power, and flow, variety of maneuver, maneuvers, those criteria specifically have more applicability at lowers, let's say, variety of maneuvers than they do at an event like pipeline that mm-hmm. we're coming into. And I know that they weigh parts of the criteria differently for those events, But that's, I think, where there's a bit of subjectivity where then the internet viewer can analyze Mick Fanning's roll-in nine-point ride that he got last year versus Yadin's late drop that he had to knife into and say, hey, I think Yaden's was more critical and that should have been scored higher than the roll-in, even though the roll-in was longer. You know what I mean?
1: Same thing, big waves. Okay. Okay, so what's the emphasis at pipe? Barrel. Right. So the emphasis on big waves— is a big wave, okay, right? But and if, you could, if it's a roll in, right, versus a late under the lip, lip, then it's more critical. That's a more critical drop.
0: The question is, if it's a giant wave that has a roll in, or a smaller wave that has a critical drop, now how do you judge those two against one another? You know,
1: but then it then it comes back to the, the same thing. If it's a if it's a big wave, a big wave with a roll in is still going to be pretty pretty awesome drop. Yeah. So I'm going to go with the bigger wave. Yeah. Maybe, but it's going to be t- it's going to be tight. If it's just a big mushy wave, big mushy wave, and there's a shoulder and doesn't make it. I mean, barely makes it. Okay, but you know, and then is it the one wave 50 feet and the other one's 30 foot? Right. Right. So, or is it one 30 foot and the other one's 20 foot? Right. So obviously the 30 foot's going to weigh a little bit more than the 20 foot. The 50 foot's going to weigh a lot more than the 30 foot. Right. But. There's, but the guy's gonna get rewarded for, for a late drop. Too. Mm-hmm. If, I mean, uh, people always go, wow, I can't believe you made that airdrop. No, I'm going, well, yeah, if I was any good, I would have been er- in early and not had an airdrop.
0: <laughs> right,
1: right. It's just like I can't catch the wave that fast, so I'm always airdropping. <laughs> right.
0: Interesting. <laughs> you, you
1: know, I learned how to survive on on my heels. Right. <laughs> you know,
0: that's an interesting point. Because, yeah, you're giving them the bonus points for making the airdrop, but realistically, the guy who didn't even need to make the airdrop should be getting the points. Right. That's funny.
1: So there you, there's your control. Yeah. But but at, sitting at home, we want to gear it so that the guy in Kansas, like that's the appeal, you know, for for some uh, people all over the world that don't know what surfing's about, to love surfing because they can understand the guy caught the biggest wave. He won. Mm-hmm. You don't know. You can't. You, it's hard for me to judge. I don't know the names of all these aerial maneuvers. I don't know sure. a shove it for a air reverse. I probably figure it out, but I'm, it's still there's a lot of nuances that you got to be on it every day, see every ride to be able to judge.
0: Right. But I think that is a great point that the viewer in Kansas can't differentiate the difference between Kelly Slater's top turn and my top turn. But when they see you know Greg Long taking off on a wave. You know, and so, yeah, yeah. Dungeons, they know what that's...
1: So we have to preserve that a little bit. Yeah. So size, you know, in a big wave contest by its title, it's a big wave contest.
0: But I would think that that would also open up a lot of new, of new sponsorship opportunities. Like a lot of non-surf related brands might have interest in being involved with something like that. They are. Yeah.
1: They're, they're starting. Like I said, start this, we're building a product. Man, we're building a pretty special product. Yeah. And I think it will attract a lot of people once it's a proven product, mm-hmm. which takes time.
0: 2014, though, wasn't was was that wasn't 2014 the first year under the ASP's um, umbrella?
1: For Big Wave, it's 2014-2015, so we're still in 2014. We're,
0: okay, so we're only through half of the season yeah. currently. we're in right.
1: the Northern Hemisphere right now.
0: And what do we look forward to for the rest of the season? What spots?
1: Well, we're looking at Piahi mm-hmm. Tota Santos and Punta Galea for our what? tour events, and then Nell Scott Reef for our qualifying. Oh, okay.
0: And Punta Galea, Spain? It's in Basque Country. Basque Country, Spain. Yeah. Awesome. How long are the windows for each event?
1: They're, um, uh, they open October 15th and close the 28th. So one, two, three, four, four and a half months.
0: Got it. You have a lot of experience building boards. Over the years, and you have a lot of experience working with different materials. I know, weren't you involved with Walker Foam at some point? Or?
1: Yeah, when Clark Foam closed, um, I, I, Gordon and I had a falling out. Of Clark Foam, and he uh, kind of blackballed me and said I could only if I didn't just use Clark Foam, they wouldn't sell to me. So I said okay, and started using Walker Foam, which wasn't a great business move, but. I uh, did re- establish a relationship with Walker Foam. Then Clark closed. Um, I went in to help uh, Harold run the business because he was in the hospital and his stepson was in China and there was nobody around and it was like panic up there. So, and I worked, just ended up staying and becoming general manager there for about the first year and a
0: half. Oh, okay. So you were there for a year and a half? Yeah. Okay. And, um, I also ask that just to kind of lead into what you had just briefly touched on, which was working with balsa, and I think you work with century plant too to build boards, right? Uh-huh. Tell me about your experience working with that materials.
1: Well, balsa wood, you know, go back to watching you know Differdange in France, and you know we, we grew up uh, in San Diego, you know Differdange loved balsa wood, you know, so that mm-hmm. so there was everybody in Of our group wanted to have a balsa wood board Mm -hmm. you know and I got to watch him shape some boards in France balsa wood and when I went to Brazil I was looking for balsa wood and on the way home I stopped in Peru to find some you know to to get enough wood to make a board and uh, this fellow from Ecuador came to Peru looking for a shaper and so he he contracted me to come up to Ecuador. and My wife was six months pregnant at the time. Wow. Because he, he had all this wood. And he goes, you can talk her into staying and have the baby here. I'll, I'll shape the boards. Like, you know, I'd love to. So he somehow did it. And <laughs> I shaped about 100 boards. I was doing three or four balsa wood boards a day. I wow. I production balsa wood boards. Wow. Uh, and I, I, I look at some of them. I've seen some of them now, and I can't can't believe how I did it. They're pretty nice, really even, nice boards, but three of them a day. Was he
0: exporting them out of Ecuador? Yeah, Yeah, he was exporting
1: them. We sold them. What label were they under? They're called Mar Bravo.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting.
1: So he was selling for the local community and tried exporting. Mm -hmm. First first chance, first try at exporting. Yeah. Didn't work too good, but.
0: That's cool that you've been able to see some of those boards since then, though. Yeah. Revisit uh-huh. them. Yeah. Interesting. So um, I ask you that in regards to your big wave surfing experience. Like, tell me about the differences riding balsa as opposed to polyurethane.
1: Well, balsa wood is just like the ultimate surfboard. Is it really? Oh, uh, it's the ultimate. It's it's the best. It's, you know, this the, the agave century plant boards that I make, uh, they're beautiful. And uh, that's like my art form. Sure. Uh, but they're very porous and they soak soak up the water, really. I think balsa's a tighter grain. Soak up the resin, soak up the, soak up the resin. They soak up the water, too, if they get a ding. But oh, the is yeah, yeah. a little tighter cell, or quite a bit tighter cell. So it, it, it'll it soak water, but it, it takes more time. And um, it just doesn't flex. So it doesn't dissipate energy. So in big waves, when you're riding a 10-foot board, you don't lose any speed and it just gets just all I have to do is stay on it and Hmm. it almost rides itself catches waves early has this tremendous glide Hmm. a longboard same thing for a longboard perfect for nose riders because they don't they don't flex right so you when you you'll notice if you paddle a longboard out through two foot surf go through it flexes when you go through a little chatter kind of right just going through a two foot wave right so imagine what that happens when you're on a 30 foot wave it's it's a lot yeah and to compensate we have to glass the foam boards with so much cloth Put a big wood stringer they get heavy and then they don't flex quite as much they still flex though yeah and they still break the balsa wood board i put a little bit of cloth on it four ounce cloth so i can actually make a lighter balsa wood board than i can a, a gun once i get over seven foot i can get pretty competitive under seven foot you know you don't the boards just so so light with foam. It's hard to get that light. I did make a a five pound uh, board for Chloe Andino balsa would board a, a six footer for him. Oh okay, you know that, but that's just rare.
0: Well, yeah, you were saying uh, balsa is the ultimate surfboard material. Is that specifically for boards over seven feet? Or do you, does it have a lot of value under seven feet too? Like for short boards, basically.
1: For short boards, it's like there's about a pound of weight that makes a difference. And, it, and if you're so if you're a top pro surfer, probably it, that's going to be too much. If you're just a recreational surfer, you're, it's going to be borderline. You yeah. might like the foam board a little bit better because small waves, I do like the flex.
0: That's what I was going to... Th-
1: ask i do like the flex yeah uh and in balsa wood you've you've got to have the perfect rocker you know the rocker's got to be because of what happens in a in a foam board and short board where you you ever ridden a board and you you didn't like it and then you moved your feet around and all of a sudden you liked it yeah put a foam board on a waterbed and stand on it see what happens to the rocker changes yeah so when you move your feet you change the rocker right uh, and so, that's how you can uh, adapt to a foam board that, you know, get accustomed to it. You right. Know. Um, the one thing about balswood that it, that is goes across a board is it'll last for a lifetime. Hmm. Doesn't break in half. Repair it. If you if you beat up the glass job and got too many repairs, you can strip the cloth off and re-glass it and you got a brand new board. So, the holes pretty much a lifetime experience
0: interesting um, why don't you see more of the big wave world tour guys riding them
1: uh, probably not their their knowledge um, mm-hmm. I've loaned uh, one of my boards to Anthony Tasnick in Peru and he got second I loaned uh, one to Peter Mellet, the one that got lost at sea I'm sure you heard about that but, I'm not sure we had the, the event in 2010 at Nelscott and it was big it was like you know, forty to fifty foot faces, and I loaned Pete my ten six, and the cord broke, and it went it to sea, and was lost for nine days. It went up. I put a reward out, and it washed up on a beach sixty miles to the north. No. Yeah, but before he did that, he got a ten point ride uh, on it, and another one of my balsa wood boards was, in that event, was used by Carlos Burley, Marcos Montero, and Jamie Sterling, and Jamie rode it in the finals
0: so like each heat they would pass it off to the next guy basically yeah. crazy
1: yeah so you end the in the price you know that you know I mean they're,
0: they're not cheap
1: they're not cheap yeah so you know three to four thousand dollars for a gun
0: it's a shame to see it get lost at sea well, <laughs> it's an I expensive got back
1: yeah yeah and patched it up and rode one of my biggest ways the next season at Toto did it. you so, yeah it's ridden my biggest way that boards that board is my when I lost it realized it was my most prized worldly possession really yeah i've ridden my biggest wave at totos second biggest wave at totos my my second biggest wave ever at dungeons nelscott reef at at one time i'd ridden the, i'd ridden the biggest wave at nelscott reef uh, on that board then i've ridden mavericks at solid 20 foot and lanada bay uh, Twenty foot, NY Man Bay. So I've rid- taken taking it all over.
0: Not, not to mention the legacy of people who have ridden it. In yeah. addition to you, Pete Mel getting a ten on it is kind of a cool thing too. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite big wave spot? I mean, you just named a who's who of big wave spots. What's your, what spots do you like the best? Well,
1: now I, you know, I'm always kind of partial to Totas because I know it so well.
0: Well, I'm sorry. The reason why I ask that is because the guys who grew up in Mavericks love Mavericks. The guys who grew up at YMA love YMA, but I think you're one guy who's had such a worldly experience that you can really speak to.
1: Yeah, I've, I've ridden the waves all over the world, I, and I spent plenty of time at Dungeons. I got in a lot of sessions over nine years, and I, I love Dungeons, and I, I I like Pico Alto. I think Pico Alto's probably my favorite big wave. I mean, It's just, is it? just such a long ride, but... I'm so much more comfortable at, at Toto's right now, especially right now. You know, I'm 65 next week, and you know, starting I got a hip <laughs> bad hip, and I sure. you, know, you know starting. And I want to be comfortable, and and uh, I love Mavericks too. Um, it's just that there's so many guys out there right now. Yeah, and if I surfed it every day, I would know who's just sitting and who's going, but I don't. So it makes it really hard when there's that many people out. And you don't. You only know. You, may, you might know a few guys that are out there, but you don't know everybody. And I don't want to. You know that that drop is 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 nuts. Yeah. And you've got to be really confident. and You got to charge. You got to paddle and just go. And if you're looking to see if there's anybody around, it's he who hesitates is lost. It's just yeah. that that's why people like their spot. Sure. Because they're comfortable with it. They know where it's going to break. They know where to sit. Know when to paddle everything else and I just had that relationship with, with Totos Pico Alto I love it but it's so far out in the water and it's usually you're surfing by yourself it's yeah, kind of dangerous it's like 45 minute paddle out and no boats around usually
0: what's your professional opinion on Nazare like we see that wave the last couple of years and oh, Nazare. yeah Nazare right yeah. Um, so you see that wave in videos and it's like there's criticism of it's just not vertical enough, and there's never a bottom. You know, people are just kind of constantly tracking on kind of a shouldery whitewash. What are your thoughts on it as a big wave? And
1: well, I I think any big wave you you have to be you have to ride it to give a real opinion. Oh, okay. And I don't think anybody that's actually been out there is is calling it soft. And those that are probably should go uh, ride one. <laughs> and tell me
0: well does it have the potential to fit into the big wave world tour at some I'm not point
1: so sure um you know it's all toe toe in at this point the problem with the big wave uh contest is you have to you know do heats with the format we have of six surfers and they all have to be catching at least two waves or at least three of them have sure. to catch two waves sure i don't think that's going to happen paddling because in a beach break it's the same thing as um as Puerto Escondido yeah it's just you know you see the wave that Greg Long got and it's a legit 40 footer and yeah but how many waves actually got ridden that day and probably three or four
0: right and that's yeah I think Shane last year when he got that crazy right drop he said he surfed it for three days and got like two waves basically yeah
1: so we need more waves so you really want a reef break an offshore reef break or, yeah. or a big point break like like uh basically like what Totos is and what, uh, Mm what Punta Galea um, Galea is a point break. And also uh, Punta de Lobos is a, is a left-hand point break.
0: Yeah. A lot more uh, variables involved with the big wave surfing and competitive surfing or restrictions, so to speak, you know, or moving pieces, I guess is what it really is that um, make it challenging. I think
1: it's, it's extremely challenging, and and it's it's I've always approached it as like guerrilla warfare, you know, yeah. just small band, and you know now we've got a large army, and right? It's, it's it's a little bit more complex, but it, that's really the only way to you know bring it to the people at home with a nice webcast. So yeah, we're we'll we'll figure
0: it out. Yeah, awesome. Based on your experience in Brazil and this world title race coming up, with Gabriel Medina's in the pole position potentially could be the first Brazilian world champ ever. What are your thoughts on the event? And do you have any insight at all into Gabriel himself?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I'm hoping uh, that Gabriel Gabriel wins. Do you? Yeah, I really, you know, I love surfers from every place, but I have such an affection for Brazil and their passion and their drive for sport. And I just think that they deserve it, you know. I mean, it's... Probably per capita it is the strongest surfing nation in the world yeah I mean they've got all this coastline and they're just they love sport right I mean they're the football you know they're, they're fanatic about football and, and surfing and I think surfing is number three I think tennis is number two but surfing okay. is right in there and um, you know I, I, I met Gabriel Medina uh, in Ecuador in the ISA World Junior Championships. And, and I was commentating on that. And, you know, I knew the coach and I knew all the Brazilians. So I watched him and I just went to, this guy's, you know, when I first saw Kelly Slater, I went world champ. I first saw Andy Irons, I went world champ. I first saw Gabriel, I just went world champ. Man. Really? He's, yeah. He's 15. And he's just, all of those people that I just mentioned, Andy and and and, uh, and Kelly. When they surf they the board is just part of their body. Yeah. It just it, it just feels like an attachment. They're never you know, it's just like a, a limb or something and it, and that and that's how Gabriel was and and you know, I got to go in to the, the meet with the, you know, team after that and, and there with the coach and introduce the kids and they were just so tight, you know. All mm-hmm. all of them were just they were a team. And that's what Brazil has over Mexico, for for say, Mexico has been surfing longer. got better waves and there's no world champion in that future right now, Mm -hmm. you know, and and because they're all state, you know, like it's all our local community. They don't see the bigger picture. Okay. They see Mexico. Interesting. Brazil sees Brazil. Right. They're all, they're going to win. You know, we're we're surfing against Peru. We're going to stomp you guys. Australia, it's all of us, you know. Yeah. And the, the Gabriel's just such a nice kid. Is he such a good vibe? It's such just a warm, genuine person. And um, you know, I just think he's going to be, you know, a great champion. And you watch him um, when he you surf, when he served uh, when he serves the heat, um, chiopu You know, this year is just like he saved the best for last. Mm. What a competitor! He didn't fall to the final. Right, right. And he. He was gonna win yeah and those weren't easy waves. You know? no
0: why do you think Brazil gets such a bad rap in America and Australia I'd say it does uh, surfers do that's a that's a good question and I got a real good answer for it perfect
1: yeah because because um they don't they shouldn't have a bad rap they, you know I'll, I'll just give you an analogy if you if you uh, if you're watching if you're a dog, And you're watching a bunch of dogs run down the street and have a great time and you sit there and watch them run you're gonna think those guys suck (laughs) if you start running with them you're gonna have the time of your life and they do everything as a group Brazilians love to love to they love their friends they love their family they love their passion about everything they do and they get excited you know they just frenzy they're, they're always in a constant frenzy like a school of piranha. You know, there there's waves. Yeah, we're all going to paddle for this wave. We're all going to catch it. We're all going to have a good time. We're going to have fun, you know. Right. It's, it's a party. We're all dancing. We're all grabbing chicks. We're all drinking. We're all having a good time. Yeah. Right? And, and you're welcome to join. Okay. You're. It's not us against you. Yeah. This is just how we roll. Come on. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, I sit with some of my friends long time ago in the eighties and we were sitting around and they start talking about we're in Brazil and they start talking about, oh yeah, but the green goes this and the green goes that and the green and I go, dude, careful and he goes, Fuck you, Gary, you're a Brazilian. You know, I I was in the pack. Right. You know, and anybody could be there.
0: Yeah. Well that's a great analogy, but I see that the um the conflict comes up where they then paddle out at lowers, let's say, as an example. And they might be thinking, hey, all you other 70 people out here, you can be in our pack. But there is that kind of conflict where the other 70 people are like, look, we don't want to be in the pack. And we were here first or whatever other detail there is. You, you know? Know, I
1: think that's a more shallow worldview than the Brazilians.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, I think you just got to share. Mm. I mean, you show up and if everybody, you know, maybe the, you know you know, there's a little difference in rules and stuff, I mean, maybe. But it doesn't really get I mean, if you're at Swami's or you're at Trestles, the share rule doesn't get applied.
0: Right, not at all.
1: I mean, I go to I don't even go to Trestles anymore. Right.
0: Maybe at Malibu it gets applied a little bit.
1: I don't even think so. Yeah. I don't think it gets applied to anything. It's just Four or five guys that are the local guys are going to get all the good ways.
0: Right. Yeah, Of right? course, they
1: don't want to share with anybody. Right. That's better than them, of course. Right. Right? Yeah. So the open door policy is almost – and it happens in Brazil, too. There's places you, you're you not going to go mm-hmm. because the localism is so heavy. Right. But in general, it's – you know. Yeah. You're, you're, you're welcome.
0: Well, I think that, that um, the passion for sport and the tenacity that you talk about could definitely – be infused into some of our American youth surfing yeah. culture. You know, like, I think we have kind of this culture of entitlement and it hasn't reflected great in their competitive prowess. Um, but I also wonder how much of that, if there's a boiling point where it's like some of it is fueling Gabriel Medina, and I think it has, you know, and it's helped propel him to the position that he's at. But what is the boiling point where it then becomes pressure that's on his shoulders rather than a fire under his
1: Oh, he, he has more pressure on his shoulders right now than you could possibly imagine. Yeah.
0: Because all the weight of the country that has they never want, had a world champ.
1: They want a world champion. Yeah. But that pressure, he knows that that pressure is going to turn into the best day of his life Yeah. once he does it.
0: Is he equipped? Yeah. He's equipped to, I know he's, uh, his surfing ability is equipped, but is he equipped to manage that pressure?
1: Go back to Chopu.
0: But yeah. Chopu, the world title wasn't on the line at that yeah, but, moment. But, now it, it but, is. But, but yeah. his
1: life's on the line.
0: Well, he could come he back last year. It, and
1: but he planned it. What I'm talking about is Chopu, he planned it. He, he's a smart guy. Mm-hmm. He can plan it, he can gauge his performance, he can program it. He can do it. Yeah, he knows what it takes, and he can do it. He has mental control. That was my analogy.
0: Yeah, he
1: didn't. He didn't risk everything till he didn't fall off till the till the final at Jokes. Right. So he he knew when to take his risks. Right. He know you know, and he knows he can handle the pressure. You know, he's a kid. He's twenty years old, twenty one years old. He's a kid. Yeah. It's still fun.
0: Yeah, I think regardless of what happens at Pipe. He will be a world. He will be a world champ at some point in the next. Yeah. You know, whatever.
1: It, it's good for him to do it. To get it now. Yeah, it's good to get it now. Yeah.
0: Exciting times, man.
1: Oh, yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. I, I, I had a, a bet with Sean Thompson that about the that someday there'd be a. Brazilian world champion so I've been waiting too
0: how when did you place the bet oh I don't know 20 years ago or something oh, at least
1: 20 years ago and oh, he bet probably 30 years
0: what why would Sean bet that there would never be a well, Brazilian it, it was world champion
1: it was more on when
0: oh you know, okay
1: Then, whenever yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's taken a little longer than, than what we thought but,
0: yeah well but I'm yeah. excited for it I personally am always rooting for Kelly you know And I, like, I I was telling Scott Bass this, actually, where it's like, I actually want Gabriel to win because I think that that would inspire Kelly to continue competing. He's got a contender, just like Andy did, you know, where it's like, this is my nemesis, and I can go head-to-head with this guy for the next five years. Whereas if Kelly just wins a 12th world title, he could potentially just retire next year and go out on top. So I want to see that, you know, he needs a... He needs a contender. And well, Gabriel's. I'd like
1: guy. to see Kel- Kelly uh, start to compete on the Big Wave World Tour because most people don't know how incredibly good Big Wave rider he is. Mm. And I'd like to see he and Shane Dorian restore re- uh, that rivalry because that's, yeah. that's the best one. That's the understated one because those is guys it? are good, re- really good friends.
0: Well, they had a semifinal... No, a quarterfinal heat at Pipe two years ago when Parko won. Shane was in as a wild card, and Kelly made it through that heat just barely. But in my estimation, I felt like Shane got the better of him. And I think it's like if you're going to beat the champ, you have to knock out the champ. And so they let they gave it to Kelly kind of, but really I thought Shane surfed backdoor better than Kelly did. You know, yeah. it was a backdoor heat. Yeah. Um, so I would love to see that too. So. Do you think that Kelly would actually pursue the Big Wave World I think Tour? He
1: might. I mean, it's it's one thing that he uh, he always says he's would like to compete. We invite him, and he like to compete. But he's on conflict, and he's focused on the on the WCT. Um, he's done the
0: Eddie a number of times, right? right?
1: He's done the Eddie that the year that uh, Greg Long won, he got second.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And all the rest of the top five finishers. Came in the last, we're in the last heat of the day when the swell pumped. Mm -hmm. And that's the format of the Eddie allows for that. But Kelly was technically, in my opinion, the best surfer of the day.
0: Didn't he get a perfect wave, a perfect score?
1: I think he did get a 10. Yeah. There were a couple of 10s thrown that day, but his was thrown on technical, not size of the wave.
0: Right. I do recall that.
1: Yeah. Um, And he, you know, he's won, he's won the Eddie. Right he's got second at Mavericks
0: mm-hmm.
1: albeit a long distance second from flea that
0: year but wouldn't that be interesting though if he did commit to the big wave world tour after his CT retirement
1: I, I think there's a possibility that that's that's what we're hope that's what I'm hoping for I think um, he's got plenty of rivalries just not just uh, Gabriel, but I think John John's probably oh. a bigger rival than than Gabriel would ever be Gabriel would be the Rob Machado and you know <laughs> the goofy foot that's contrasting style it's going to be hard to beat but John John's going to take it to him
0: John John's the Andy yeah
1: yeah
0: awesome well I've uh, overstayed by seven <laughs> minutes oh boy I'm late for my call thank you right. thank you
1: oh you're welcome that was that was enjoyable
0: I never felt magic crazy exist. I never saw moons knew the meaning of the scene Never heard the motion in the palm of my hand I felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree But now you're here
1: right in my northern
0: sky You can learn more about Gary's surfboards and even get in touch with him through his website, lyndonsurfboards.com. although he's probably en route to Spain right now for the Punta Galea event, Uh, but we'll also have a link to his website on our website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. And of course, if you want to watch that Big Wave World Tour event, go to aspworldtour.com They'll be streaming everything live, but they'll also have recaps and a heat analyzer so you can watch the entire event after it airs for free on demand at ASPWorldTour.com. And, of course, the big grand finale showdown of the ASP Men's World Championship Tour at Pipeline is happening uh, this week that we're recording this episode and uh really i mean just the highlight of the year it's what it all comes down to so definitely check that out thank you so much gary linden for taking the time he was actually fielding calls uh you could probably hear his phone buzzing throughout the interview and he was kind enough to actually not even pause the interview and just deflect all the calls let him go to voicemail but i mean literally it's a who's who of uh Big Wave World Tour surfers and important people and decision makers with the ASP that are trying to get a hold of him because, obviously, as he mentioned, Piahi was potentially going to happen and a number of different events throughout the world. So, busy, busy time for Gary during the recording of this. So, huge thanks to Gary and, of course, thank you to the listeners, to you, for tuning in to Surf Splendor and, more importantly, just for sharing the show. I always say, that you know, we are reliant upon you to help grow the show. And if we want to attract exciting guests like Gary himself, it's important that people are listening to the show. You know, Gary's not gonna to want to come onto a show that's gonna be broadcast to three people. But the fact is, we've been able to attract guests because you guys are spreading the word. Todd Glazer emailed me from Hawaii and said that He had a number of people who have come up to him in Hawaii saying that they really enjoyed his episode. So that's great feedback for us to receive. It's great feedback for Todd, and he's got an amazing network of friends who he'll be able to recommend to us as well. So continue spreading the word, help this thing grow, and uh, that is all that we ask of you. We'll continue producing the content. So thank you once again for always listening and always supporting. I'm your host, David Scales, saying until next week, ciao.